0: You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you
1: personally?
2: Brexit, Brexit. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once-in-a-generation a vote. a financial crisis.
1: But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again because I don't think you this is a good dudes. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast in which we discuss current political events. My name is Neve Quinlan and with me today is Senator Alice Mary Higgins with whom I will be discussing the current issue of the new legislation recently pushed through the Oireachtas regarding mother and baby home records. If you like this podcast don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at Dublin LPR or on our website DublinLPR.ie. This podcast will furthermore be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Flirt FM. The Mother and Baby Homes in Ireland is yet another scar on the surface of our country and says a lot about how unmarried mothers were once seen. The Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes in Certain Related Matters was set up in 2015, following the discovery of the bodies of about 800 babies in a septic tank. This was at the old site of the Bon Secours Mother and Baby Home in Shúm, County Galway. The Commission is investigating 14 named homes in operation between 1922 and 1998. Senator Higgins, thank you very much for joining me today. I want to start off by asking you to just briefly explain to our listeners what is happening here with the mother and baby homes and what is actually happening with their records.
0: The Mother and Baby Home Commission uh, was coming towards the end of the period of investigation and the legislation that was put forward by the government in its initial form the legislation was seeking to split the documents that the Mother and Baby Home Commission had that what they called the, the database and the relevant records, so those were the records that came from departments and went into the Mother and Baby Home Commission. So the relevant records and the database would be going to TUSLA, and the other documents, which are documents they say created for and by the commission, so things like the testimonials, the research investigatory documents, documents that were part of the interviews, for example, that the commission had conducted. All of those documents would have gone to the minister. I think a lot of concern was created by the government because in their original communication about that, they were saying that the database would be going to TUSLA and that they were doing that so that the database could be used in TUSLA's, you know, day-to-day, you know, their work around answering requests and dealing with data. but that And they were doing that so that the database would not be sealed with everything else. So I think that language around sealing was brought forward by the government initially because they, they conveyed that. Their belief at that time that everything that went to the minister would be sealed for 30 years and then that the other doctors that went to TUSLA might be available, but people have huge concerns with TUSLA, and TUSLA had a very poor record in terms of how they have, in many cases, been seen as obstructing people's access to their own information. So this was kind of the bill that came into the Oireachta, and there was a lot of very serious concerns around it. And people were rightly, you know, they are alarmed when they heard this idea that all of the Mother and Baby Home Commission documents would be sealed for the 30 years. This is, of course, I should just say this is separate to the Mother and Baby Home Commission's own report, which will, of course, be published and will be an anonymised report that gets published.
1: I see. And there seems to be a bit of confusion. So could you please clarify whether or not the records are actually sealed?
0: In the course of the very long debates in the Shannon and in the door, a couple of key things happened, a couple of key changes happened. And then the most important thing as where we are now is there's been a change in interpretation. First of all, one thing that I had certainly been pushing for when the bill started in the Shannon, and I know others were pushing for as well, was that we didn't want to see all the documents from the Commission split in two. That if documents were going to TUSLA, It was vital that the minister would also keep a copy. So he would keep a copy of all the records.
2: I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is Minister O'Gorman.
0: Minister O'Gorman. And by Minister, of course, I mean the Minister O'Gorman and the department, so whatever other minister might be in the future, the minister would get a full copy of everything. And that was something that's that's really important. And that comes into the second piece, which is around interpretation. So basically, that's something that the minister accepted after the Shannon debate. And he brought in an amendment himself to say he will keep a full copy of everything. So while a copy of the database and the record would go to TUSLA, a copy of the database and the record, along with those documents created for the commission, like the testimony people gave, the interviews, that a full set of everything will be with the minister. Myself and also many, many other experts, including really importantly, you know, groups, you know, experts like Mabel Roar, people like. Time regard GDPR, have been disagreeing with the department's interpretation, which said that they believed, under the Commission of Investigation Act 2004, that all the documents that go to them, that they would be sealed for 30 years. And we disagreed with that interpretation, because the General Data Protection Regulation, that's the, the European Data Protection Law, had come into effect since 2004, and in fact, since this original commission was set up in 2015. Since both of those times, we have had the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. And that has really strong sections, particularly Article 15 of the GDPR, is really strong around people's right to their personal information. Our entitled in that section to do what they call data subject access requests, where you say, as a person, I want to know what information you have about me, I want my information. Basically, that is the core principle of GDPR. It gets framed a lot as being about privacy. It's actually around empowerment, and it's around giving people power to both access and have a say in how their personal data is used.
1: So then, what's going to happen if people apply for their personal information through GDPR? We
0: were arguing that basically, if somebody makes a data subject access request under Article 15, where they say, I want copy of any personal data of mine that you have, to the minister, that he was going to have to reply to them, that he couldn't ignore it, that the GDPR would apply. There was an interpretation from the department. We were told at the time it was all based on the Attorney General, but a lot of it was based on the department's interpretation of a previous old advice from the Attorney General, that they regarded that there was an exception. The information that came from the Mother Baby Home Commission wasn't subject to GDPR. Basically, the two reasons that I, for example, and others would have thought that they were wrong in that one was, when you look at Section 41 of the 2004 Act, that's the one that mentions 30 years. It specifically just says that after 30 years, the papers shall be given to the National Archives. It doesn't actually prohibit what you do in the meantime. It specifically just talks that after 30 years, the papers will go into an archive. It doesn't actually use the language of sealing, isn't actually in the act. And then the other thing that the Department had been relying on in their interpretation was that after the GDPR came in, Ireland had a Data Protection Act in 2018, and Section 198 of that Data Protection Act, it basically changed Section 39 of that 2004 Commission legislation. And it put in this phrase, which is that Article 15 of the data protection regulation is restricted to the extent necessary and proportionate to safeguard the effective operation of commissions and future cooperation of witnesses. So that basically said that there may be a restriction, okay, the key word here is a restriction to safeguard the operation of commissions. And it was really interesting in the second Shannon debate because the minister, she said, because of Section 39, there is an exception to GDPR, but it is a restriction. It's not an exception. A restriction is very different. A restriction cannot be a blanket restriction. Every individual time that any individual looks for their own personal data under this section, the onus of proof would be that the department, or the minister, He would have to prove that giving this person information would somehow stop commissions functioning in the future. The problem was, for a while there, there was this idea that we won't be engaged with GDPR. And this is where the big turnaround happened. The data protection commissioner was really clear that if Section 39 was a kind of blanket measure, illegal under GDPR, you're not allowed to have a banking restriction, you can only have necessary and proportionate restrictions. And the other important thing is, in the interpretation, in the case law on GDPR, the balance always goes towards people being able to get their personal data. And basically, in the Shannon and in the Dáil, there was really, I think, constructive engagement from a lot of opposition parties and individuals who all put forward amendments
1: which would really clarify. And was it always necessary that Section 39 would apply to the database and the documents uh, found by the Commission?
0: The Minister also could have chosen to say, I'm not going to apply Section 39 at all. And there were amendments put forward to him that would have said, I'm not going to apply this, even this partial restriction of Section 39. He would have been absolutely free. The idea that his hands were tied by the Act of 2004 isn't the case because the piece that he said his hands were tied to was only inserted in 2018 in the Data Protection So they could have absolutely chosen to ignore that. But even so, the minister's situation would have been strengthened if he'd accepted some of the kind of constructive amendments which were saying things like Article 15 rights are really important. There was a lot of measures to kind of strengthen the recognition of GDPR in the minister's bill. Didn't really go for those, which would have, I think, been useful. In the days after the bill had passed, effectively, he was forced to acknowledge that the interpretation we were pushing was correct. Basically, what has happened now is the minister has acknowledged that what the data Protection Commissioner has said is true, what all of the NGOs and people like the Clad Project and Adoption Rights Alliance and ENTES and Labor Roark and all the GDPR experts, half of the opposition, that the things that we were saying in terms of that the GDPR does apply, that any person can write to him, and they don't have to wait 30 years, they can write to him as soon as he has these documents from February, when he's going to get the documents from the Commission, and they can say, Minister, I am writing to ask for my personal data from your records and that he has to consider that, and that he has to weigh up how he's going to interpret that request, and that each person has to be given an individual response. And that's where now the next piece comes in, which is around how he interprets that responsibility. Is he going to take the kind of often hostile approach which Tusla and some other organizations have taken in the past, where they very much err on the side of redaction or of denial of information? Or is he going to take a positive approach where he's seeking to give as much personal information as he can to people? And that's what we still need to determine and see what approach. Because ultimately, that is called a data controller. And I think one of the key things is that between now and February, when he gets the document, that it's so important that he's talking to Survivors. he's talking to adoptees, he's talking to both the individuals and the groups who've been advocating around those who've been affected, that speaks to GDPR experts and guess their perspective on it, and that he he makes sure that he gives a, I would say, a positive and empowering approach to the requests that he's receiving rather than a restrictive approach. So that's kind of a whole other piece of work we're at now. And this is why when people were campaigning about the field, The government were talking about the seal and we were both saying that we didn't believe the seal stood up legally, but nonetheless recognising that the seal really is there in policy and has been there in policy. They have now admitted effectively that there isn't a seal under law, but we need to make them still change the kind of mindset and culture of seal, which is there in the policy.
2: Um, I do just want to ask though, so the government have decided, you know, they said out loud, look, you're right it isn't an actual seal. But as you said, they do have the mindset of a seal. But Minister O'Gurman pushed that bill through the Oireachtas very rapidly. It took about like a week and a half, two weeks, which is extremely fast. And he released a statement on Twitter that the bill doesn't actually seal the archives for 30 years. And instead, the bill was brought forward to save the information from, and I quote here, being sealed by pre-existing requirement under an earlier law. So is it really about protecting data though a lot of people yeah. felt a lot of anger towards that I think the
0: minister may have believed everything he received was going to be under seal so the interpretation that the department had been pushing very strongly was that the 2004 act obliges the minister to seal everything he gets and so I think that the minister may have believed that by giving some things to tutela he was saving them from that seal however the later realisation and acknowledgement that the field does not exist in law kind of undone that logic. And the whole thing moving so fast has allowed for it to be more alarming for people to create loads of confusion. It is completely bad practice that committee and report stage of this bill were taken together in the Senate. That didn't allow the minister, he ended up effectively accepting some of our points as correct. But if there had been a day or two's gap between committee stage and report stage, if, for example, even when the data protection commissioner's advice had become public and everybody was saying, seems like the, the AG advice being quoted here is wrong, if he had been able to say, actually, I'm going to pause the bill now and come back next week, then the kinds of things that they, the kind of climb down that they had to do afterwards, they could have actually fixed it in the legislation. Definitely
1: the speed didn't help. And you mentioned earlier Tusla's poor previous record with openly handing out information that they are storing in their databases. And then there has also been some debate, like just outside of this, whether or not Tusla is the suitable place for them. What do you think? Can you elaborate on that earlier point that you made for me, please? There's
0: two problems with the original interpretation. One was that they were sending the things to Tusla, ignoring a very strong message from adoptees, from survivors, from others who have said, we are really, really unhappy with the way TUSLA approaches these issues of personal information. They were giving the information to TUSLA. The other big problem with their original proposal was that they weren't keeping a copy for the minister. And there was nothing in the bill to say that TUSLA had to keep all of those records and the database together. Each of those records could have been scattered to different filing cabinets. The line at the time was saying there is a seal but it's in previous legislation and because of that we're trying to take a thing out of that previous legislation and basically what we were all saying, the seal does not stand up under the European Data Protection Regulation. The seal just doesn't stand up. But also you could, if you wanted, choose to disregard sections of that 2004 legislation. The 2004 legislation is not set in stone; it can't be changed. I think the witness statement piece is a really interesting example.
2: And is this witness statement where the witnesses give evidence but they aren't allowed to keep a copy of the evidence that they gave? Exactly.
0: The actual Mother and Baby Home Commission, it's established under that 2004 but it has to be established by its own special statutory instrument, its own special order. And the Order of 2015 is really interesting because... It's actually balanced a little bit differently. In the 2004 Act, there was a lot of emphasis on privacy. But the actual mother and baby home order in 2015, it did not say that proceedings need to be in private. What it actually said was provisions should be made to accommodate individuals who wish to speak confidentially. And, and this was a big debate in the Senate during this bill. So Senator McDool had argued that the causes for the confidential committee that effectively everybody who participated in it was guaranteed confidentiality. I, I know, you know, there were some who really want that confidentiality, but basically the, the argument was that actually this shouldn't be transferred at all. And myself and Senator Lin Ruan pushed back very strongly against that because what we said is people testified to the confidential committee But the actual rules of the Confidential Committee in that order of 2015 say that there should be a procedure where people can request to speak confidentially if they wish. But that's not what happened. Instead of people being given the option to request speaking confidentially, they were told that it was in private. And in fact, there's records of a lot of people who were directly refused permission to speak in public. So effectively, privacy wasn't something that was promised to people or even something that was an option that people were given. Privacy was something really imposed on people. It wasn't something chosen. And and I spoke about this in the Shannon because that felt like a huge silencing for a lot of, of women who spoke about those experiences. You know, we know how important and empowering it is to be, I'm reclaiming my story. I am now testifying. I am now putting my experience on the record. And in fact, It is a concern that the way that the Commission approached it, effectively people felt that they had yet again been hidden away or silenced. So that was a huge debate in the Shannon during this legislation. And in fairness to the Minister, I think that he listened to that debate. So another change that was imposed in this bill was that between now and February, which is when the records will be transferred to the Minister, the Commission has to ask people, do they want to be redacted? And that means that they'll be redacted from those files, which again, bear in mind, in 30 years' time will go to the National Archives. And they're going to ask people who testified. So they're not asking everybody reference. They're not asking, for example, a particular person who worked in a mother and baby home who's referenced by others. They're not getting asked. It's only those who the, the actual witnesses themselves who spoke are being given the option of having their personal data redacted. But that is a step forward from an assumption that they all want their information all redacted. So that's something that's going to be happening between now and February. But just as an example of how Section 39, how narrowly it has been interpreted. Section 39 has been quoted as a reason why people can't get a copy of their own testimony. This is separate from whether or not your name goes in the record. This is you just personally wanting a copy of what you just said. And people have been denied copies of their own statements. And this is obviously really extraordinary. And I had an amendment that I put in, which is to be clear in terms of interpretation of Section 39, because if you read Section 39 again, it says, the right of access should only be restricted to the extent where it's necessary and proportionate to safeguard the effective operation of commissions and the future cooperation of witnesses. And I had argued that when people are witnesses and they do that extraordinary emotional and psychological work of telling their story and then are denied a copy of it, that that's something that actually damages witnesses' cooperation with commissions and sends a really negative message to witnesses who have received constant negative messages from the state. So basically, we still have not had an assurance from the Minister that people will be given copies of their own testimony. And bizarrely, even though you know I've just described how the Commission is going to write out to people and ask if they want to have their personal data redacted, but when we asked, well, will they be given a copy of their testimony when they're making that decision, we still haven't had a guarantee that they're going to get a copy of their testimony. That's kind of where we are at the moment. I'm hoping that that, that obviously needs to be addressed. A big game-changer now is the fact the state has recognised that people have the rights to their personal data. And the Minister has now confirmed as well, just to get a sense of how important it is, the state has now finally admitted that individuals do have their rights to their personal information and that GDPR does apply. We've also heard now that it could apply, and it does apply indeed, that people are entitled to seek their information in relation to the McAleese report, in relation to the Ryan report, in relation to these other commissions that have happened in the past. That's really important. That's really significant change. That right was there, but the fact that it is now being acknowledged is really important. So it's important that not just Minister Roger O'Gorman has a really proactive and positive approach in terms of how he engages with requests, but that there's the same kind of a shift in the culture of how they respond to requests for other ministers who will be dealing with similar queries around the investigations and commissions in their area. And last thing is, it's not just around the individuals, because it's not even fair, I think, that it would just be on individuals seeking their individual personal data. If the government wants to show that they really have had a mind shift change, there are other powers under the Data Protection Regulation that the minister can use. He can, for example, decide that some of these documents he gets from the Mother and Baby Home Commission, that there may be information in them which should be shared in the public interest, and he can make regulations to share information in the public interest, and that has to be done through a process that he has to set out. But, for example, the minister could choose to share information around burial and around death. Because one of the most heartbreaking things for people is not being able to know If their loved ones lived or died, and where their loved ones are buried. That information is so important, and I believe the Minister has actually power under the GDPR to make regulations to extract any useful information that will help people around that and to publish that. So I'm hoping that the Minister doesn't just deal with individual requests for personal data, but uses the full powers of GDPR to share important information for the public interest and for the public good, and
2: that might give peace to, to a lot of people. I only have one question left for you now, more so looking at the human side of it. So, the mother and baby homes looked at in the Commission were in operation between 1922 and 1998. I remember learning in history that eight years previous to 1922, when we were under British rule, the British government chose not to introduce conscription in Ireland for World War I, because they felt there would be uproar for taking away Ireland's sons. Yet later, Ireland let their daughters be taken away into those homes. Can you talk to me about the history in Ireland, why that was allowed, and the effects that you think have been left on the country as a whole as a result?
0: For me beginning to understand the way that Ireland has treated women and young unmarried pregnant women, I became aware of that for myself when I was 15. And it was the time of the X case. And at the same time as the X case was happening, and I was hearing about this 16-year-old, you know, somebody my age and, and what she was going through, I was also, a friend of mine who was in Galway Youth Theatre was performing in the very first reading of Eclipse by Patricia Burke Brogan, which was literally the first time almost that we were hearing about the Magdalen Laundries. And for me, the two things were entwined because it was... This idea of a state that really treated women and their bodies as, as something, a subject of control that imposed a lot of shame on women and that constrained them. Since then, we have seen all of that huge architecture of institutional abuse and violence and control become unpicked layer by layer and we've learned more and more about it. And we know that in the Mother and Baby Homes Commission, there's lots of other bodies involved in, in exploitation. There were babies taken from women in psychiatric institutions where women had been put because of postnatal depression. There are women in small centres and homes around the island that didn't get included in the terms of reference of the Mother and Baby Home. And it is around a deep, fresher version of what a family must look like. It is around a not trusting women. Recently, the Scally report that talked about a culture of not trusting women, of not empowering women, and of silencing and and intimidating them. And that's very deep in Ireland. And we are only beginning to unpick it. Some of the things that we need to look to still is, we've seen recent investigations covering the fact of how lone parents in Ireland, who are predominantly women, that are just way outside any other group in society. Just incredibly high deprivation rates. And they're still subject to inspections of their homes by social welfare inspectors. And that's around, again, that idea of we don't trust women. Again, moments like Noel Brown, when he tried to bring forward positive mother and baby home legislation and proposals that would have empowered mothers and their children and how that was squashed down. He was to protect the existing systems which were very much systems of control and exploitation. So this is extremely deep in Ireland. And I think some of the tests of this will be, first of all, that we place the survivors, the adoptees, the women who were, and, and the men and families of the women and men who went through this system, we treat them as the central guide on how we move forward, that they get to shape what happens next, that they get to guide if there is an archive how it would function, how it can protect and support their rights. The, the minister listens to what they need and places that at the centre stage in terms of a new, open approach to giving people information, giving people back their lives, rather than treating them with a kind of a distrust. But also, we need to change a few other areas of current policy. For current women, we need to be giving real support to one-parent families in Ireland and to women who are parenting alone, and they should not be finding themselves both economically disadvantaged and treated with distrust and sometimes hostility by the state. And also, Ireland still has a closed adoption system. I won an amendment three years ago which required that the department would do a consultation on the possibility of introducing open or semi-open adoption in Ireland. So that would be an option for adoption where people can know their birth family as well as the family they're adopted by. But that becomes an option that's available because at the moment Ireland adoption system is still closed and there is still a, a lack of post-adoption counselling or post-adoption contact. So that's something that we can fix, because when they did that report that I, I kind of had asked them to do, they found that actually there's a very strong case for this. It's done around the world. It's less traumatising for uh, both birth families, adoptive families and children, and um, when those kinds of options are on the table. And I think the feel in law does not stand up, but the feel in policy needs to be shifted and also, the culture of secrecy and repression, which is there in a very deep mindset within the Irish state and within its institutions and departments and bodies, that really needs to also be challenged and overturned. So, there is work ahead.
2: St. So, Joergen, that's everything that I have for you. Thank you so, so, so much. You've been amazing. I really appreciate you calling me today and speaking to me as well.
1: To our listeners, thank you very much for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast on the new legislation recently pushed through the Oireachtas regarding mother and baby home records. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. This was Neve Quinlan and I wish you a pleasant day. Thank